Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Very significant healing taking place, intergenerational healing. The walk continues, how they're reclaiming the spirits lost to a former residential school. Plus. It's really upsetting. We've been so good for so long. So all of a sudden, here it is. Why Akutni City is believed to be a COVID-19 hotspot despite increasing vaccinations. And... The democracy demonstration marking two years of Hong Kong protests. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. I'm Neetu Garcha. Hundreds are in the midst of a three-day journey in the interior this weekend. They all feel compelled to take part in the Walk Our Spirits Home journey in honor of residential school survivors. As Amadagahi reports, this year's trek is taking on even more meaning given the preliminary discovery of an unmarked burial site at the former residential school in Kamloops. Three days, they will walk under the hot interior sun. For those taking part, each step brings another opportunity to reflect, pray, and heal. So it's about honoring those that have passed before us and about um, moving forward with our future. It's a long journey, about 64 kilometers on Shushwap Road, along the banks of the South Thompson River. The healing purpose of the event organized months ago made even more impactful with last month's discovery at a former residential school in Kamloops. Those walking here will tell you today is for the survivors and those who never came home. The people that went there and, you know, the cruel injustices that happened and the love from the families we still get today, the growth that's happening. It was very emotional yesterday. I did the 25K and I had my meltdowns in between different intervals and... Um, it's just overwhelming. Like, there's not enough thanks to give to everybody that participated. Friday morning, the walk began with a ceremony in Kamloops, led by members of the Adams Lake Band. It is fitting to be starting a healing journey here at the home campfire of the residential school, the Kamloops Indian Residential School where the memories of residential school has impacted so many. It's been a very emotional roller coaster leading up till today, really. And I was very emotional walking that red bridge. I can feel the ancestors joining us. Participants of the walk say there is a long road to travel, both this weekend and in the many years to come. And that walking home the spirits of their ancestors brings hope of moving closer towards a day when they can pass on healing instead of passing back trauma. Emma Degahi, Global News. 
We are now hearing from the head of the Roman Catholic Diocese in Kamloops over the recent discovery of the unmarked burial site. Bishop Joseph Nguyen has now posted a message on YouTube reiterating the diocese apology. He also recently met with the Kamloops Tshwetmik chief, Roseanne Kazmier, and all of the Kamloops First Nations communities to personally express his sorrow. There have been calls for the Pope to apologize as head of the Catholic Church, but so far the pontiff has stopped short of doing so. Nguyen says he is willing to work with First Nations communities moving forward. I want you to know that we are here for you. We want to work together with you. And more importantly, we want to work together with First Nations communities toward healing, reconciliation and peace. And the Kamloops discovery was also part of talks between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Queen. A statement from the Prime Minister's office says the monarch and the PM spoke about the remains of 215 students found at the former residential school, as well as the deadly London, Ontario truck attack. Trudeau is in Cornwall, England for the G7 summit. A small West Kootenai city just north of the U.S.-Canada border emerged as one of the province's COVID-19 hotspots this week. Grand Forks recorded 11 new cases in the week ending on June 5th, but it's the transmission rate that has experts and politicians pleading for people to get immunized. Kristen Robinson has more. Grand Forks is home to some 4,000 people. Nestled between the Okanagan Valley and the Kootenays, the city is known as the hub of the Boundary Region. And it's also now a BC COVID-19 hotspot. It concerns me a lot. We're not immune to it. Despite months of social distancing and masking protocols, the latest BC CDC data shows Grand Forks has the highest transmission rate in the province by local health area with an average of 13 new cases daily for every 100,000 people. We have actually a lot of immunocompromised people here in Grand Forks, and so that means it's, it's a really scary time for most people. I think there's, uh, what happened is probably complacency, you know, people are getting a little tired. We're seeing um, cases rise in areas where vaccination levels are low. UBC's Dr. Sally Otto encourages faith and community leaders to step up and help change that. Grand Forks's mayor is on board. Get out and get vaccinated, especially the young people. There was no lineup during drop-in hours Saturday at the community's vaccination clinic at the local curling club, where many were getting their second shot. I have heard that there was a few cases in in the schools. I think we were just uh, unfortunate. It's really upsetting. We've been so good for so long, so all of a sudden here it is. And certainly we are very alarmed here and I want to encourage everyone to get out and get vaccinated. Brian Taylor's push comes as Grand Forks reopens. The mayor says his city is a safe place to visit once health officials give the green light for travel across the province again. And the good news? None of these hotspots are anywhere near the, the worst of the hotspots that we saw um, a couple months ago. Yeah, I'd like us to be known as the hotspot for something different than that. Kristen Robinson, Global News. 
While more than 75% of all adults in this province have received their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, a group of doctors is trying to persuade those who are still hesitant. If everyone does their job, get their shot, we'll be back to normal life before you know it. In four videos posted to social media, the Victoria Division of Family Practice is encouraging everybody to get vaccinated and help end the global pandemic. With the highly transmissible Delta variant on the island, the doctors say it's crucial for people to get both their first and second jab as soon as possible. Full vaccination will maximize protection and herd immunity is needed to defeat the virus, even if you're young and healthy. A lot of things that I've heard recently are people waiting to see if things will be okay if they don't get vaccinated. And I'd encourage everyone that we do really need everyone to be vaccinated. But what we are seeing is young people are being affected more and more and needing hospitalization. And even for those who are not hospitalized, we are seeing that months down the line, they're having difficulties with memory, concentration, energy level, and their breathing. People think that maybe taking some vitamin C or some health food supplement will boost their immune system and protect them from the COVID infection. In fact, I wish it was that simple, but the only way to really protect yourself is to get the COVID vaccine. The Vancouver Coastal Health Region marked a major milestone this week. Lionsgate Hospital, which admitted the very first COVID-19 patient in Canada in late January of 2020, had zero cases as of midweek. In a tweet this past Wednesday, Dr. Kevin McLeod, an internal medicine specialist who works on the COVID ward, said it was the first time since that first case that there has not been a single COVID-19 positive patient in the North Vancouver Hospital. McLeod says it's very optimistic news and a sign that the vaccines are working. Firefighters and park rangers in Vancouver dealt with a very large, stubborn fire right in the heart of Stanley Park. Vancouver Fire Rescue says they received multiple calls from people living in nearby high-rises just after 9 o'clock this morning of a large plume of smoke deep in the park. It turns out a large tree with a base circumference of more than 3.5 metres had caught fire. The tree had been hollowed out at the base. About 180 metres of hose had to be hauled in to help contain the fire to the one tree. The cause is under investigation. A Surrey family is desperately trying to find any sign of their loved one so desperate that they've hired a private investigator to try and find her. Doris Rad hasn't been seen in more than a week, but as Julia Foy reports, there are fears the young woman who's had brushes with the law may have become a victim of a crime herself. Please help my niece, help me find my niece safely. Please. This is a plea. Elizabeth Gulistani is worried for the safety of her 27-year-old niece, Doris Rad, who often goes by the nickname Della. She last made contact with her family on May 28th and was seen five days later when Surrey RCMP were called for a wellness check outside a restaurant near 16th Avenue and 128th Street in South Surrey. Individuals in the public had reported seeing an individual uh, who was intoxicated outside of Ocean Park Pizza here in Surrey and they wanted us to check that person. We did. Uh, an offer was uh, of a ride was offered at that time. Um, she was fine. When Doris Rad didn't contact family by June the 6th, her family filed a missing persons report. A search of her name in court services reveals Rad had several interactions with police and the courts. Her family is concerned that she was getting stalked by a person she was in a former relationship with. 
she made some poor choices with uh, boyfriends. And uh, so that's the one thing I know. Well, we haven't received any information or any statements that would be provided to us that would indicate there is any foul play involved, and we haven't found any indication of any foul play at this time. That being said, if people uh, know Doris Rad and they have information that would assist us in our investigation, we ask them to come forward at this time. Doris Rad is described as five foot two and 110 pounds, and she was last seen wearing a black jogging suit. Anyone with information is asked to call Surrey RCMP or Crime Stoppers. Gulistani is praying that she's all right. Doris, I love you more than anything in the world, and I will never stop looking for you. Please, please, I, I pray every second of the day that you would come home safely. Julia Foy, Global News. Activists protesting against old growth logging in BC held a sit-in at a major Vancouver intersection today. Dozens of members of Extinction Rebellion and their supporters marched from City Hall to nearby Broadway and Camby. The demonstration is in solidarity with ongoing protests over logging at the Ferry Creek watershed on Vancouver Island. More than 200 people have been arrested in that protest. Teal Jones Group holds a valid license to harvest timber in the disputed area. The activists are calling for an end to all old growth logging in the province and a commitment to net zero carbon emissions by 2025. Around the same time, over at the Vancouver Art Gallery, dozens took part in a flash mob demonstration against the Chinese government. Vancouverites concerned about Hong Kong organized the event, which aims to stand up to the ongoing crackdown on pro-democracy efforts on this, the two-year commemoration of the Hong Kong movement. We are still fighting for Hong Kong. Hong Kongers are in all over the world still remembering this event and we are fighting what Canadian value most, freedom, freedom of speech, and also uh, universal suffrage and uh, democracy. Freedom threatened anywhere is freedom threatened everywhere. And we know that even in Canada, the same people who are oppressing the Hong Kong people, taking away their freedoms, are trying to muzzle Canadians here and muzzle our freedom here. We have the two Michaels there. Uh, they're still imprisoned for no reason whatsoever. And so we're, we're standing in solidarity with the two Michaels, with the Hong Kongers, with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, with the Tibetans, with all oppressed people. Coming up, shock in southern Saskatchewan. An on-duty officer is killed and two people are in custody after a collision. Plus... The fact that the entire Canadian nation stands with them. A family's funeral. Hundreds attend a service for the victims of the London truck attack. Breaking news out of the prairies, a Saskatchewan RCMP officer has died while on duty. The Mounties say 26-year-old Constable Shelby Patton was killed while following two suspects driving a stolen truck east of Regina. Constable Patton was on regular patrol when he spotted the truck that had been stolen in Manitoba. The officer pulled the vehicle over in the town of Wolseley at around 8 this morning. During the course of the stop, while outside of his police vehicle, Constable Patton was struck and killed by the truck. Sadly, Constable Patton died at the scene. 
Two hours later, the truck was discovered abandoned near the town of Francis. Shortly after finding it, a man and woman were arrested. They remain in custody pending a first court appearance. In southern Ontario, hundreds of people braved the heat today to honour the Afzal family. Three generations, a mother, a father daughter and a grandmother were killed on Sunday night while walking in London. Police believe they were targeted because of their faith. Tonight, it's that faith that is helping the grief-stricken community try to come to terms with the tragic loss. Kamil Karmali reports. The four caskets of the Uvzel family draped in Canadian flags a nod to their new home after immigrating from Pakistan 14 years ago is an apt testimony of the fact that the entire Canadian nation stands with them. Hundreds of supporters from London, Ontario's Muslim community and beyond came to the Islamic Centre of southwestern Ontario. Religious leaders led the crowd in prayer, mourning for the lives lost. Salman Afzal, Madia Salman, Yumna Afzal, and her grandmother, Talat Afzal. Four fountains of sweetness were taken away. Three generations taken too soon. The loss to our family, immense. But a belief held strongly in the Muslim faith that all four are in a better place. Never think of those brother and sisters as dead. They are very much alive. They are with us. Earlier in the day, a private service took place at a nearby funeral home. The Uvzal family had a few relatives in London and the greater Toronto area, but many came from Pakistan, the UK and the US to be here and support the lone survivor of the attack, nine-year-old Fayez Uvzal. He remains in hospital, now orphaned and unable to attend his family's funeral. They've come in throughout the town. They're all going to be here to support him now to make sure that he is taken care of. Family friends say he was surrounded by loved ones in hospital while watching the funeral. It's a very emotional day. I don't think they'll realize what has happened until it's done. And uh, that's natural with most funerals, especially for them because it's so charged emotionally. As the procession left the Islamic Center, the four caskets were taken to a nearby Muslim cemetery for another private service. A family and community now trying to move on, but hoping these senseless deaths spark a call for change. In response to this tragedy, members of all parties in the House of Commons have agreed to organize an emergency national summit to combat Islamophobia, but no timeline has been set. Kamel Karamali, Global News. Coming up, is it time to give up gliding around the city? I have seen erratic riders. The questions in Kelowna around the safety of these scooters. And Victoria police are searching for a missing dog after the owner was randomly and violently attacked. Victoria police are hoping to reunite a victim of a random violent attack with her dog after it ran away during an incident near Pembroke and Government Street around 8 o'clock Friday night. It comes as officers responded to reports of a man who began smashing the windows of the victim's van with a hammer 
while she was inside with her dog. This is Camper. Its owner tried to drive away during the attack, but when she couldn't, she and the dog jumped out while the van kept moving and collided with a parked car. A 40-year-old Edmonton man was arrested nearby, but Camper the Pitbull took off and hasn't been located. The lost dog has a pink collar and was last seen running near Government Street and Belleville Street. If you have any information, you're asked to call Victoria Police. In the Okanagan, WildSafe BC is asking Lake Country residents to be on the lookout for a wounded bear seen wandering in the community. This photo, provided by the Conservation Officer Service, shows a bear with an arrow in its left front shoulder. Anyone who sees it should call the COS right away. It was spotted Thursday on Commonage Road. The injured bear was seen eating garbage. Another set of bears was also spotted accessing garbage at Cars Landing. WildSafe BC reminds Okanagan residents to properly secure bear attractants. A Coquitlam family slept through a spectacular bear break-in earlier this week. Sean McQuillan sharing photos and video on social media of the early morning intruder. The black bear managed to get into his car via the driver's side door. The BC Conservation Officer Service says a second bear then opened the garage where the garbage is stored. After the pair ate the feast of 1,000 toddler leftovers, he says three RCMP cruisers arrived in the neighborhood and one bear sauntered up their front steps before both walked away unharmed. McQuillan's vehicle and his son's car, the seat bearing the brunt of the damage. Yikes. Some Vancouver beaches were not staffed by lifeguards today due to a staff shortage. There were no lifeguards on duty at Sunset Beach, Spanish Banks West Beach and Second Beach, although the Second Beach pool was open with lifeguards on deck. The Vancouver Park Board didn't give a reason for the staff shortage. For the second summer in a row, the city of Victoria is turning one of its downtown streets into a pedestrian priority zone. Government Street between Humboldt and View is now closed to vehicle traffic between noon and 10 p.m. daily to provide more space for patios and pedestrians. Loading zones are available for commercial deliveries until noon each day with 24-hour access for emergency vehicles. It's hoped the change will help increase foot traffic for businesses recovering from the pandemic. In Health Matters Now, more than 20,000 e-scooter customer accounts have been created just in Kelowna for the extremely popular transportation alternative. But is it too popular for its own good? The city of Kelowna is now reviewing its program with some very eyebrow-raising proposals aimed at making it safer for everybody. Darian Matasafung reports. So we asked staff to come up with a report and give us some data. Kelowna City Council is set to review the e-scooter program that has had people gliding around the city for the last 45 days. City Council will be reviewing a report prepared by city staff which outlines the positives and negatives of the project. I've heard for and I've heard against and I have seen erratic riders and um, but those who believe in the program, like the program, are very strong about it, and those against it are also very strong about it. One positive outlined in the report is the reduction of traffic around the downtown core, with the potential to remove over 250,000 kilometers of vehicle travel in the next year. On the negative side, the report indicates that one-third of e-scooter injuries could be related to impaired riding. Three companies already require riders to take an electronic pledge that they are not intoxicated and only companies with this option can operate late at night. 
but when talking to residents, thoughts about the e-scooter program are varied. I think it's good. Um, besides having them always left in the middle of the road or the sidewalk, if there was like a docking station. I'd rather see it, it, it axed but then repositioned, maybe in some park settings or in some settings where there's a lot of space. Like I know there's one of their trails is pretty wide here as an example, but it's just uh, it's too busy down down around town. I think if they could do it safely, it would be a great addition, but I don't think there's a great way to do it safely. And safety is the concern of Interior Health, which has written a letter to the City Council that will also be presented with the report. Evaluation of shared e-scooter programs in the U.S. and Australia estimated that between 20 to 28 injuries per 100,000 trips required medical attention. 70% of injuries were either fractures or head injuries. The rate of head injuries is more than double the rate experienced by cyclists. Clinicians at Kelowna General Hospital have also reported a rise in injuries in e-scooter riders, but exact statistics haven't yet been compiled. The report will be reviewed by City Council at its next meeting on Monday. Darian Matassa-Fung, Global News, Kelowna. Health officials in Alberta are keeping a close eye on a number of COVID-19 outbreaks in the Calgary zone. And one of the most concerning is at Calgary Foothills Hospital, where more than 20 staff and patients have tested positive for the Delta variant. Alberta Health Services says there are currently 22 cases linked to the highly infectious variant first detected in India. That is 16 patients and six staff members. Ten people who tested positive for the Delta variant are fully vaccinated. While that number is concerning, one infectious disease expert is not surprised. Dr. Craig Genie says vaccines are not perfect against variants, but getting that second dose will provide much more protection. We do know that fully vaccinated people still are only about 80% protected against Delta. Now the good news is, although you can be infected, the severity of disease is typically quite low in the people that are fully vaccinated. So there's still a degree of protection from severe illness. Even if you get it by some awful quirk of fate, you still will do much better and you won't die. And that's what really matters uh, in all of this. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney says they are keeping an eye on the Delta variant, but added that cases are not growing at an alarming rate. Coming up next, the statue standoff. A proposed piece of art draws interest from visitors and ire from neighbours. The art piece already generating talk before it's even been installed. Details on that just ahead. But first, a reminder to be sure to join us tonight as we launch Rise for BC's Kids right after the news hour here on Global BC. Formerly known as Miracle Weekend, it is the 35th year of sharing inspiring stories from kids, families and experts at BC Children's Hospital. Learn about the latest ways health care for children is being transformed across the province and how you can make a difference. To donate, you can go online to riseforbckids.com or call 310-BCCH. That is 310-2224. Phones open at 7 o'clock tonight. 
Right now, though, let's focus in on the forecast and what things will look like outside your window <laughs> around that time. Yvonne Shell is joining us now. Yvonne, what's in store for tonight? Nithu, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. We started off with uh, sh- showers this morning. We've had some breaks, some sunshine. It's been hot through the day, and now we're starting to see an increase in cloud cover already. Here's a gorgeous shot, though, overlooking uh, the North Shore Mountains. Temperatures are sitting at 17 degrees, and we've got a northwesterly wind at 11 kilometers per hour. But it bumped up today, especially away from the water. With the Humidex, it was feeling like 24 and 25 degrees, and that was stretching in towards the Fraser Valley. And Kamloops today is seeing highs of up to 26 degrees. Overnight tonight, though, we are looking at some rain developing. It'll be late this evening, overnight, heavy at times. It'll cool off. Temperatures will be down to 14 degrees. Now we've got a bit of a break in between systems. It'll be a chance of showers for tomorrow morning, and then the next wave of rain is going to push in, and heavy at times for tomorrow afternoon. So a heads up. We're already starting to see some precipitation moving in on the satellite and radar, and that's along the western edge, eastern areas of the island, and that's going to intensify, especially as we get in towards the evening hours. And there's that wave on the future cast overnight tonight. Areas in yellow, that's the heaviest precipitation. And then for tomorrow morning, it'll be a bit of a break with the chance of showers the afternoon, heavy at times, and leading in towards the evening. So a bit unsettled to round things off for the weekend and into early next week. Look at some of the numbers. We could see upwards of 10, 20 millimeters for most spots, but it's along the North Shore Mountains. The potential is there by tomorrow evening. We could get up to 30 millimeters. The northern half of the province for the coast tomorrow, much need a break. Temperatures will be up to 16. Inland is where we've seen that instability with the risk of a thunderstorm. Drier conditions, though, for the northeastern corners and much of the central interior tomorrow will have a chance of showers and even the risk of thunderstorms. Prince George will see highs up to 19 degrees. Now, areas towards the south cloud cover on and off showers. Temperatures, though, still getting into the 20s for most areas. Areas near Whistler tomorrow on the cool side, just up to 16 degrees. And along the south coast, we are going to see a bit of a break in the morning hours with a chance of showers. And then by the afternoon and evening, it picks up. It'll be heavy at times. Grab your rain gear for tomorrow. We've got a drier patch for Monday night. Heaviest rainfall so far on Tuesday. And then once we get past Tuesday, Nithu, we'll actually have drier conditions and some sunshine to round things off for Thursday, Friday. Admittedly, looking forward to that. You bet. <laughs> Thanks, Yvonne. Well, it's already the talk of the neighborhood, and it hasn't even been installed yet. Boy Holding a Shark is set to be erected in the heart of Vancouver, but as Paul Johnson reports, there's already a petition against it and a rebuttal from the nonprofit group behind the art piece. Here's a sure sign that despite all that's happened in the last year, things are pretty good in Vancouver. Consider the latest call to action in False Creek, putting a stop to this. This work is called Boy Holding a Shark. It's the latest vision of Vancouver Biennale, the group that's brought iconic, large-format artworks to the city for years. You may know Amazing Laughter at English Bay or Trans Am Totem. Some love it, some don't, but such is the nature of art. The questions... The kvetching is pretty pretty consistent for 20-some years. But never more so than for boy holding a shark. When Barry Mowat met us for this interview, he was confronted with some of the people who've organized a petition against it, saying they're completely outraged and that it's offensive and inappropriate. Well, if everybody in the neighborhood says, don't put it here, I don't think that's nimbyism. Reasons include worries of a safety risk for pedestrians on the busy seawall, and that most sacred of concerns for Vancouverites, 
What will it do to property values? Well, there's, there's two types of art, maybe three. Uh, the two main types are, are beautiful and ugly. And there's, there's no two ways about it. This is a very ugly statue, the great dripping fish. Well, it's understandable that people who have to see it every day want to weigh in. There's the larger question, can you have genuine public art if some can veto it when it doesn't suit their taste? Historically, a good, a very large percent of the population ultimately say, hey, that's pretty cool. I didn't think that way when I started out, but I like where it is. I think it really is a nice addition to my neighborhood. If it goes ahead as planned, boy holding a shark would go up in a matter of months and be in place for two years. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Well. <laughs> everyone's got an opinion. Right? Yes, everyone's got one. It's our job to present both sides and let our viewers right. decide. How totally. It's nice to it. talk about something else other than a pandemic. There you what go. The heck, right? That's positive. Absolutely. <laughs> On that note, though, Barry, it has been a difficult day in sports. Yeah, well, just shocking for uh, fans looking to settle in and watch uh, some of the greatest soccer players in uh, the world. And Christian Eriksen, who fits into that category, a Danish soccer player, collapsed on the pitch during the match. They had to uh, perform CPR on him, and he is he is fine. That's the great news, but it certainly shook everyone up. Uh, so we'll uh, tell you all about that coming up. And some really good news for Canada's national men's soccer team. They are one game closer to the uh, final qualifying process to get to the World Cup of 2022. All right. Thanks so much, Barry. Also coming up, in the words of a former residential school administrator. Kids are really lonely, obviously. They're away from their families and friends. When he says First Nations started pushing back and what that looked like next. We are hearing tonight from a former school administrator at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. As Chad Klassen of CFJC News reports, Nathan Matthew says he arrived at a time when First Nations were starting to take a lead role in their education. And a warning, the following story may be triggering for some viewers. Residential schools operated in Canada for more than 100 years, with the last one closing in 1996. During most of that time, they were run by the federal government and by extension the church. However, by the 1960s, in the era of civil rights movements, things were starting to change for First Nations. There was a change in education policy uh, with First Nations across the country and in, in, in the province. And... Uh, Instead of having the, the First Nations students uh, separated, uh, they said they would integrate the, the students into public schools. And so that changed a whole lot of, the, a lot of the process. At the time, Nathan Matthew noted First Nations were pushing back and challenging the status quo. He says the chiefs in the Thompson region, who were forced to send children to the Kamloops Residential School, got together and pushed for Indigenous leadership at the school. Soon after, Matthew became the school's administrator starting in 1973, when it was simply a residence for the students. The idea was to make the place more livable for, for kids. So we were able to uh, make sure they had uh, better food, better clothing, a lot uh, of uh, activities, uh, and with a little bit more focus on culture. Matthew had heard the horror stories from his parents and family, all of whom attended the Kamloops Indian Residential School. When he arrived, students ate mush while administrators had proper meals. He ensured everyone ate the same food. 
there was a lot of sadness. Uh, kids are really lonely, obviously. They were away from their families and friends. Matthew also raised the expectations of the students. There, there had always been low expectations for First Nations kids. So the, the tendency to put them on uh, modified, adapted programs were, uh, I think, felt, felt to be appropriate when we didn't think so. Just make sure to get the right kind of support for these kids. The shift in First Nations education policy was the beginning of the end of residential schools. There was a, a very general up, uprising of, uh, of ideas about First Nations control of everything. Matthew says while conditions have improved dramatically for First Nations since the closure of residential schools, there's still a long way to go. Chat class and CFJC News. And coming up in sports, stable after a sudden collapse, Denmark soccer player Christian Eriksson's medical emergency that forced a crisis meeting with team officials. Celebrate many of the world's best in sport that made their mark right here in BC. Global BC is honored to showcase the BC Sports Hall of Fame Class of 2020. Watch Global News Morning weekends as we recognize BC's best in the world of sport and hear about their personal trials and triumphs. Big Sisters of BC Lower Mainland know youth who have a strong, supportive relationship with adults outside their immediate family are more confident, have less anxiety, and greater academic success. Enroll a child in their program and give them the gift of mentorship. All right, Barry's here for a look at sports for this Saturday and starting off with soccer. Mm-hmm, yeah, well, a lot of people are very excited about this Canadian men's national team. Nuthi, we'll see if they can uh, get all the way to the World Cup this year. Canada's men's national soccer team will know by Tuesday if they are going to the final eight for World Cup qualifying in the CONCACAF region. Canada breezed through the previous stages, but now it gets a lot tougher. They have to beat Haiti, a pretty good team, in a two-game total goal series to get to that final eight tournament and have a chance to qualify for Qatar. But not great conditions in Haiti. A slow artificial turf field, hot, humid, 32 Celsius conditions, but... Canada got off to a great start. Jonathan Osorio finds Kyle Laren, who taps it past the uh, Haitian keeper in Canada. Off to the strong start they wanted, 1-0. Haiti well aware of Alfonso Davies, and accordingly Davies chopped down here with a, a reckless tackle. Amazingly, no yellow card issued there, hard to believe. Davies was okay. He's used to it. Moments later, Kyle Laren, another chance. Can he make it two he cannot. Nice save by the Haitian goalkeeper. Remains 1-0. Second half, Jonathan David will get sprung. It's a clear break from midfield. David is Canada's best finisher, but he is denied. Credit the Haitian keeper with the save there. Remains 1-0, and that's the way it ends. So Canada took care of business today. 1-0 win on the road. Now they just need a draw Tuesday in Chicago. That's considered a home game for Canada. If they do that, they'll advance to that final eight. Well, it was a frightening scene on the pitch at Euro 2020 today when Danish midfielder Christian Eriksen collapsed to the turf. Thankfully, we can say 
He is in stable condition and awake in hospital tonight in Denmark, but it was very much a life and death scenario at the time, and it shook everyone who saw it unfold. Before the match, Erickson looking fit and healthy, but just before halftime on a throw in to Erickson, the 29-year-old just collapses to the ground. His teammates immediately summoned for the doctors to rush onto the field to administer CPR. They also used a defibrillator. They worked on him for 15 minutes. Players and fans in the stadium shaken by, by what they saw, but thankfully, Erickson was awake when they took him off the field and to hospital, and at last word, he was in stable condition. Game suspended, uh, suspended for about an hour 45 when it resumed. Finland scored. Joel Pohanpala with the uh, header sneaks it past the keeper. 1-0 Finland. A bit of a muted celebration, as you might understand. Danes awarded a penalty in the 73rd, but Pierre Emil Hoberg with a weak effort there. Well saved by the Finnish keeper as Finns beat Danes 1-0. Such a tough start for Denmark, but their thoughts right now with... Christian Anders, uh, uh, Eriksson rather, but the uh, Belgium and Russia from St. Petersburg. Belgians, one of the favorites, and even on enemy soil, they overwhelm the Russians, who aren't that bad a team. Romelu Lukaku turns and fires in the opening 15, and then he runs to the camera and has a big shout-out for his Inter Milan teammate Christian Eriksson, a great gesture by Lukaku. Later in the half, first shot stopped by the Russian keeper, but Thomas Munier converts the uh, rebound with the left boot. It's 2-0. More from Lukaku in the second half, 88th minute. Man, he just needs a little bit of space. Knocks in his second in the match. Two for Lukaku. Belgium, uh, even without the injured Kevin De Bruyne, thump Russia 3-0 in Group B. Earlier in the day, Group A action, Gareth Bales and Wales taking on Switzerland. First goal comes early second half, and it's the Swiss off the corner kick. Briel and Bolo will head that one in. 1-0 Switzerland, but the Welsh will equalize. Kiefer Moore also with the nice glancing header into the corner, and Wales rescue a point. 1-1 the final with the Swiss. All right, women's final from the French Open. Not exactly household names. Russia's uh, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova on the left against the Czech Republic's Barbara Krachikova, both in their first Grand Slam final. Split the first two sets, but in the third, Krachikova with the break at love. Fires the forehand winner, takes a 4-3 lead. Now to match point. And Pavlyuchenkova will hit it long. Barbara Krachikova is the French Open champ, 6-1-2-6-6-4. She'll also play in the doubles final tomorrow. We'll try to make it to a couple of championships at Roland Garros. Men's final goes tomorrow, 6 a.m. our time. Djokovic against Stefanos Tsitsipas. Baseball today from Fenway. That's Victoria's Nick Pavetta getting the start for the Sox. Had a great year so far, 6-1, 3.78 ERA. But Pavetta got knocked around today by the Jays. Vladdy Guerrero launches a 400 39-foot homer, his major league leading 20th. His 52 RBI also tops in the majors. He's got the third best batting average, so he's a triple crown threat. 2-0 Jays. Then in the fifth, after Kevin Biggio homered, Pavetta surrenders a two-run blast to Marcus Semien. It's 5-0 Jays. And then on the very next pitch to Bo Bichette, he will jump on a hanging curve ball and send it over the Green Monster. Jays hit five homers on the day, four versus Pavetta, uh, Pavetta, rather tough day for him. He took the loss. Jays take it 7-2. PGA Tour stop is in South Carolina for the Palmetto Championship, taking the place of the RBC Canadian Open for this year only. Canadian Open will be back next year. Second round leader, Shasan Hadley, had the par 3, 14th from 
30 feet, knocks it down for birdie. Hadley at uh, 14 under, a four-shot lead. Dustin Johnson, the world number one, who's from South Carolina, stalled out a bit today. A birdie putt at 16, but he would give it right back at 17 with a bogey. He's at minus eight, six behind the leader, Shasan Hadley. Nick Taylor of Abbotsford tied 27th at minus three. Merritt's Rogers Sloan is 59th at plus three. Well, last night we featured in a new spay high jumper, Mike Mason. He had a chance today to directly qualify for the Tokyo Olympics if he could hit the automatic qualifying standard of 2.33 meters at today's Harry Jerome Classic at Swan Guard Stadium in Burnaby. Mason has already competed in the three Olympic Games in the high jump, 08, 12, and 16, looking to make it four. Building up to that 233 standard as he clears 230 here. Just his second competition in the last 16 months because of the COVID shutdown. So now 233, it's his personal best. He'll have to have a perfect jump to get it. On his first attempt, he does not make it. And he tweaked his ankle, so he decided to shut it down. But still a positive day for Mason. It is totally fine. It's normal for me to have ankle pain, especially when I'm pushing things kind of to the limit. I haven't had very many meets this year, so I haven't had many chances to really push it to that limit. Uh, and today I got there, especially on that last 30, and it's, it's not injured or anything like that. And really, he, he likely will qualify for the Olympics. He's on a very highly ranked on a list called the Road to Tokyo. Just kind of results over the past year and a half, so... He should get there, despite the fact he didn't get that to jump today. Well on his way, it mm -hmm. sounds like. All right, thanks so much, Barry. We'll be right back with the latest on an elusive emu still missing near Prince George. Stay with us. Well, officials in Prince George are doing their best to track an escapee worthy of Houdini. An emu being called Dora the Explorer is loose <laughs> somewhere in the city. Here's the giant bird headed to the airport. The bird has been spotted at least three times in Prince George and really seems to like hanging out at the airport. Dora was even caught once before escaping from her captors if the bird is indeed a she. I can't really find any bylaws or services that are dedicated to wrangling emus. So this is certainly a new situation, I think, for all of us. I got to the airport and uh, there it was in the field and just kind of hanging out. <laughs> I'm really hopeful that uh, the emu has had enough adventure <laughs> and has gone home. Dora is described as approximately two <laughs> meters tall, <laughs> 45 kilograms. With brown and white feathers, the emu can run up to 50 kilometers per hour. Dora was last seen escaping from a farm in the Pineview neighborhood. Well, thank goodness we did a description or else. Yeah, we need to have that. It's very important. People would not have known if that was the right emu. I think maybe Ooh. going to the airport, Dora just wants a vacation. She wants to catch a flight. Don't we all? We're all ready for that, aren't we? <laughs> well, it's time for us to get out of here now, too. Thanks so much for sharing some of your Saturday with us. Jordan Armstrong is back for Global News at 11. Stay tuned now for Rise for BC Kids in support of BC Children's Hospital. <laughs>